from Genesis chapter 29, verses 31, through Genesis chapter 30, verse 24. I'm reading from the ESV. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband would love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given this son also. He has given me the son also. And she called his name Simeon. And she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her, and she will give birth on my behalf, that even I shall have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I give my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun.
Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, you are glorious. Our minds simply can't comprehend just how vast and majestic and powerful you are. We understand our sin is an impenetrable barrier. Our sin demands your justice, your righteous judgment. You have done the unthinkable, condescending to take on flesh and live among us, While all of us have sinned against you, you lived in this world without sin. You substituted yourself to pay for our rebellion, and you exhausted the wrath and judgment that we deserved in order that we might be forgiven. Father, we talk to ourselves incessantly, trying to convince ourselves that we're good, but your words tell us the truth about ourselves. We all have sinned and must be judged. Believing your gospel, repenting of our sin, and trusting in Christ alone changes everything. Our sin is transferred to his cross, buried in his tomb, and his righteousness becomes ours. How marvelous and how amazing is this truth. I pray for the person who is here today that is still trapped in sin, still unforgiven, Lord, send your spirit to animate your gospel truth in their minds and hearts. Regenerate them today. Empower them to repent and trust only in you. Give them courage to publicly declare their desire to follow you and to grow in you. Lord, assure them that they are among friends who desire to encourage and assist them. Father, for the one who believes your gospel and has trusted in Christ but struggles with guilt, the memory of past choices and failures and painful consequences, I pray that you might set them free today. Show them how your spirit can renew their minds through your word. Convince them, Lord, how your spirit can enable them to walk in newness each and every day. Now speak into our lives your liberating hope. Empower us to live victoriously for you, that your glory might be proclaimed and demonstrated throughout all this creation, and that we might continue to be sanctified to become more like Christ each and every day. For we ask this in Christ's wonderful name. Amen. The Wall Street Journal published a story a few months ago about three brothers. There's a 51-year-old owner of a popular restaurant in southern India called Moonrakers. He uh, competes fiercely for his customers there, and some of his uh, competition happens to be his two brothers. 
In fact, they each own a restaurant within a small area of one another. Two are directly across the street from one another and one just slightly down the street. These brothers have been known to go fist on fist out in the street fighting over customers. At one time, all three brothers and their families would sit down for dinner together. But the three brothers, once they began their restaurant endeavor, they lost that love, they lost that fellowship among their families. In fact, one of them said, as the money comes and comes and comes, love goes away. A couple of times in 2020, two of the brothers brawled with each other in the street in front of befuddled customers. Sometimes it's like a street fight, one brother said. People say, this is a complicated family. We just came down to eat and we got entertained to a fight instead. It does baffle the tourists who frequently stop by one of those restaurants. Family dynamics can and often are a complicated matter. On the surface today, the text that we're looking at is not very inspiring. In fact, it might even be a little befuddling to us or even disturbing. Two sisters married to the same man, brazenly competing to be the primary wife or the matriarch of the family. We may be somewhat familiar with the story, and then again, it may be brand new to you. But no matter where you're coming from in this, as you read or you listen to this account, you must be asking yourself, why is this included in God's Word? What's here for us? Why did God put this where He did? The story is not in Scripture in order to validate polygamy. I want you to know that, hear that. God's plan has always been one man, one woman, one flesh. This passage does expose some of the problems and conflicts associated with relationships and certainly with these kinds of practices. It also is not there to support or validate the modern idea of polyamory, which is relatively new to most of us. But again, it shows us the dark side of these multiple partner type relationships. But what is God's intent? What is He striving for us to understand? How does this speak into our lives today? Let's see what we can learn from this perplexing passage. I want to begin by thinking about the two sisters in question. We talked about them last week. We talked about the marriage where Jacob had approached Laban, his uncle, and said, I want to marry Rachel. I'm going to serve you for seven years for your daughter's hand. Rachel happened to be the younger daughter. And Laban, whether he planned it from the very beginning or whether this was something that came to him during that seven years, we're not entirely sure. But on the day of the wedding, he inserted Leah, the older daughter, in place of Rachel. No one knew other than Laban until the next morning when Jacob awakened to find that he was married to Leah. That's where we left off. So these two sisters 
When Jacob was outraged by this, Laban said, look, I'll make amends, but we have a custom. The older daughter has to be married first. But if you'll work for me another seven years, I will give you Rachel as well. You can have them both. And so along with those two sisters, he also gave them each a handmaid to go with him. So Jacob's life went from being a single man to being a man with four women under the same roof. And as we'll see in this passage, those handmaids essentially became like surrogate wives of some form. So two sisters born and raised in the same household. Some claim that there's a significant age difference between them. Some people have even suggested that they they may have been uh, twins, not identical twins, but twins, that they may have been so similar other than maybe in the beauty of the face that they were hard to tell apart. Some think that Laban fooled everyone, including the girls, that maybe he had told Leah, you're going to marry Jacob, and that Leah had a secret love for Jacob all along, thinking that he was working for her. The idea is that he had Leah convinced she was going to marry Jacob, and therefore she didn't even know what was taking place until the next day when Jacob reacted as he did, finding out that he wasn't married to Rachel. It's a regular soap opera, isn't it? So Leah, let's think about Leah. The text says that now Yahweh saw that Leah was unloved. John Curid said that he, that is Jacob, does not love her at all. In fact, Jacob probably harbored some resentment, some bitterness directed toward Leah because she had taken Rachel's place. Maybe she participated in this deception. Maybe she and Laban worked together on this to satisfy her secret love. We don't know all the details. But at any rate, Jacob did not love her, and it was clear to her, and it was clear to everyone else. Was it because she was simply unattractive? I think there's more to it than that. I think Jacob probably felt violated. She was not his first choice, and he was bitter about it. He was disappointed, nevertheless. Martin Luther described the situation this way. Listen to what he says about Leah. Martin Luther writes, Wretched Leah sits sadly in her tent with her maid and spends her time spinning and weeping. For the rest of the household, and especially Rachel, despises her because she has been scorned by her husband, who prefers Rachel and is desperately in love with Rachel. She is not beautiful. She is not pleasing. In fact, she is even odious and hated. There the poor girl sits. No one pays any attention to her. Rachel gives herself airs before her. In other words, she flaunts. And she does not deign to look at her. She ignores her. I am the lady of the house, Rachel thinks, and Leah is but a slave. This gives you some insight into what is generally believed about the setting of this household. It's been said that Leah is an accurate portrait of many frustrated women. Many wives are neglected and even despised by their husbands for any number of reasons. 
Sometimes they are innocent of wrongdoing. Sometimes they may have acted wrongly and are suffering the consequences of that. The good news in this so far is that Leah, because of her misery, is pressed to approach Yahweh, to go to God and look for help, to alleviate her misery. She appears to be more spiritual than Rachel. Her parents certainly were not responsible for that. Laban has idols in his own household. Rachel will later steal those when they leave Laban and return to Canaan. So they focus upon, they have a heritage of superstition and false worship. So her parents had not trained her in this fashion. Many believe that Jacob had invested in her. We don't know how much time has elapsed here, but that Jacob had begun to talk to her about Yahweh and about his encounter with Yahweh and what was in store for him, maybe the promise that God had given him. And that Leah had begun to think more about Jacob's God and even called out to him in this distress. Notice her language in these verses. Because Yahweh has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Because Yahweh has heard that I am unloved, he has given me this son also. This time I will praise Yahweh. So it is with Leah. But then there's Rachel. And I notice a difference right away. Rather than seeing that God noticed that she was unloved, the text says, introducing Rachel, now when Rachel saw that she was barren, that she bore Jacob no children. So we see the difference. God looking at Leah, Rachel looking at herself. I don't think that's too far off from these two women's positions. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister. What does this mean? Well, she was resentful. She was bitter. She was suspicious, mistrustful toward her own sister. It means that she's unhappy. She's angry because someone has something that she doesn't have. She's had everything she wanted all of her life. She's the beauty queen. She's the apple of everyone's eye. She's the one that everyone migrates to to have conversation. She's the one that everyone wants to do something for. Leah's the afterthought. Leah is just a piece of furniture. But because of Rachel's attitude, she is spoiled. She's petulant. Give me children or else I die. Might even say she's a drama queen, right? This is a little bit over the top. Give me children or I will die. And then she looks to blame someone else. <laughs> Jacob, it's your fault. God, it's your fault. It's everybody's fault but mine. Jacob responds in anger. This is the woman he really loves. He's infatuated with her, and yet his anger burned against Rachel. Am I in the place of God, he says? You understand that only God gives children. Yet you want to blame everyone else. The scripture says the Lord had pity on Leah as she was the one who was unloved. He opened her womb, made her fruitful, but Rachel was barren. The implication is that God made her barren, that he closed her womb while opening Leah's. Why 
Would God do this? Well, I think we don't have to look very far. We see Rachel needed humbling. Rachel needed breaking. Rachel needed shaping by God. Whereas Leah was already familiar with humility. Even though she had become a major obstacle between Jacob and Rachel. She loved Jacob, but he didn't return her love. She was crestfallen, dejected, full of despair, desperate for his love, but cried out to the Lord. Rachel, on the other hand, plans her own strategy. She's self-reliant. She's a perfect fit. Both of them are clear descendants of Laban, right? Both of them are good matches for Jacob, or at least the Jacob that we've known up to this point. Rachel begins her own plan, her own strategy. It's a familiar plan. It's even customary in the culture. For a handmaid, your handmaid, to be a surrogate mother, to have children on your behalf. We saw it with Sarah and Hagar already. Maybe she'd heard that story. Nevertheless, this is what she put into motion. And the rivalry between these two sisters and wives escalated, and it becomes super intense. Which brings us to a sinful competition. Dan talked about competition. Some of you are going to get wrapped up in this competition for the chili cook-off next week. I have yet to hear what the prize is. Now, Mr. J.K. from the Church of India this week said that they would be glad and overjoyed to come to this cook-off next week and win the prizes. So the gauntlet's been thrown down. But I don't know what the gauntlet's for. You know, maybe I'll get interested when I find out what the prize is going to be. But this was a sinful competition. Competition has its pros and cons, does it not? Competition can be good. It can be a good thing if it's handled carefully. But it's like, it's like nuclear waste. You have to handle it very carefully, lest it blow up and corrupt us. This is a sinful competition because it causes them to lose sight of anything spiritual. It causes them to lose sight of healthy relationships. It causes them to lose sight of any relationship that they might have one for the other. God blesses Leah with four sons. There's Reuben. The name looks like a combination of look and a son. Look, a son. It's better explained by the expression, God has looked on or sees my affliction and has given me a son. So God, Leah believes that God has spoken to her plight by providing her a son. You see, there's great dignity in bearing children in this culture, and there's great embarrassment when you can't. There's a stigma attached. Simeon, the second son, means the Lord hears that she was hated. Like Reuben, Simeon owned his, owed his existence to providential dealings in the face of antagonism. Leah is giving testimony that God hears his people when they cry out to him. So maybe she has listened as Jacob has explained who Yahweh is and what his promises are, and now crying out to him in her own misery, and God has provided this incredible answer to her prayers. She is a believer. She's become a believer. God, this Yahweh really is who he claims to be. Then she has a third son and names him Levi, expressing hope that finally, 
Finally, with three sons now, her son can, her, her husband can no longer ignore her, but he must attach himself to me. The bond now is not breakable. He will be drawn to me and attached to me. An intimate, enduring, and genuine bond, which didn't happen. So she has a fourth son, and she calls him Judah. At this point, she realizes that Jacob's not going to love her for sons that she has. And so she says, this is a gift from God, and we will just praise the Lord for the birth of these sons. Births of the first two sons encouraged her that the Lord had heard her cry. The third son, she felt, would draw Jacob, make him cling to her. But with the fourth son, she resigned herself simply to praise God for the provision of a son. Rachel began to panic. <laughs> Leah has put four scores on the scoreboard. And she has yet to have one. She's got to be scared that Leah is really going to become the matriarch of the family. She's going to become the prized wife of Jacob. The jealousy increased, and in desperation, she imitated the custom of the day. Take my handmaid, Bella, and have two sons. She had two sons through Billah with Jacob, Dan and Naphtali. Rachel treated these births as personal vindication. God has vindicated me and has heard my voice and given me a son. And with many wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and I have indeed prevailed. I really struggled with that. What was she saying? She's saying that I'm back in the game. I'm back in the game. These count on my scoreboard. The competition got so intense that Leah loses sight of her fragile spiritual moorings and follows Rachel's lead. She evidently has entered a point where she's now becoming barren. She's got the four sons. Rachel's got two through her handmaids. So she says, well, if we can use handmaids and that counts, I'll use my handmaid. And so she tallies two more sons, Gad and Asher. But notice the names. They mean fortunate and happy. The focus has moved away from Yahweh. The focus is more on me now. How fortunate for me that I now have another son. How happy I am. I have six sons. Surely, surely Jacob cannot deny me what is rightfully mine. Six sons, Rachel has two. She's clearly winning, right? But what's this business about mandrakes? Mandrakes. Reuben, the oldest son, is out in the fields and he finds these mandrakes. They were considered to be aphrodisiacs or inducers of fertility superstition being a big part of the family when he stumbled upon these and brought them in Leah had to be ecstatic and word rippled through the household through the family Rachel 
Rachel became covetous of this. If I only could get hold of these plants, if I could only get hold of these berries, then this might make me fertile and finally I could have a child. I could give Jacob a son. So much so, and obviously she had a very close and intimate relationship with Jacob and Leah had maybe been out of the picture because they cut a deal. Rachel says, let me have your mandrakes. She says, you stole my husband. Why would I give you my son's mandrakes? Now, Rachel doesn't take the bait here. Had I been Rachel, had you been Rachel, we'd have probably said, look, who stole who first, right? But it doesn't degenerate into that kind of an argument. She just says, look, I will hire out our husband. Think about this. This is really convoluted, right? I'll hire out our husband. You can sleep with him tonight if you give me the mandrakes. To which she agrees. They were certainly Laban's daughters. The mistrust, the bitterness... So Leah conceived and bore another son for Jacob, Issachar. Then she conceived and bore a sixth son, Zebulun. The tally's now eight to two. And then she gave birth to a daughter, Dinah. Every one of these women in the household has given birth except Rachel. She's the only one. It was a demeaning position for her who began as Jacob's chosen one. She began as Jacob's prized wife, the one he found to be so lovely, the one everyone made the fuss about. And now she's at the bottom of the totem pole. Imagine her humiliation. She's hit rock bottom, I think, and the reason I think that is because the Lord takes pity on her and he opens her womb And he remembers her and gives her a son. She bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach and named him Joseph. Named him Joseph. Now, what's interesting to me is that Leah being the the afterthought, being the one that Jacob ignored, and yet she's the one that gave Jacob the sons most notable. She gave him Levi who would be the line of the priests. She gave him Judah, through which the Messiah would come. Rachel had Joseph, and Joseph will have some prominence, but he was not to be the chosen line through which the promised son would come. So this brings us to God's providence. What's God doing here? What's God causing these things to work together to do? There's still one more son to come. Rachel will have another son in chapter 35 that will cause her death. But we read this passage and wonder why it's included. It's an ugly story of deceit, rivalry, mistrust, human planning apart from God. Yet God's sovereign hand is not absent nor contaminated by human treachery. We've been watching this. God has been showing us his faithfulness even in the midst of human unfaithfulness. Even as humans reject or ignore God, God says, I won't be thwarted. I'm going to accomplish my purposes. 
He works through all these shenanigans and establishes the nation of Israel. They're in a fierce competition that's ugly. It's not encouraging. It's not inspiring for us. God's taking this competition and says, I'm establishing the 12 tribes of Israel, the nation of Israel, through whom I'm going to bless all people. He's fulfilling the promise he gave to Abraham and repeated to Isaac and repeated to Jacob. It's not pretty because this fallen world is broken and sin dominates the landscape. But God's perfect plan, formed before the foundation of the world, is unstoppable. It's unstoppable. I don't care what you see out there. I don't care what you hear out there. I don't care how long you give up hope because you think it's so dark and so despairing that all is lost. What God has said in his word is absolutely certain to be accomplished. He demonstrates his power over brokenness and sin. Sin entered the world and had a horrible impact, but God's not deterred. Cheating, scandal, murder, deceit, all these things plague the world. They plague our lives day in and day out. We see them continually. God's still working his purposes, still accomplishing and achieving his plans. Lest you think that it's all lost and I don't have to listen or entertain what God says, don't be fooled. He's working, even using these things to achieve kingdom purposes. So what? Interesting story. Neat perspective. Wondered what was going on there and what all that was about. So what, Pastor? What does that mean for us today? What do I take away from this and do with it? Well, let's, let's think about it. Moses is writing the book of Genesis, and he's writing it with the Israelites in mind. They're in the wilderness. They've just come out of 400 years of bondage in Egypt. And Moses is thinking about these things, and he is writing them intentionally for the people of Israel. The journey from Egypt to the promised land should have taken a month. It should have taken 30 days. It took 40 years. Why? Because Israel continually succumbed to sin, rebellion, pride, arrogance, and jealousy. And these things often seem to get in the way. They would seem, from a human perspective, to derail anything God might be doing, to cause God to stop and pull back and say, we're not doing it. But God's plan all along was for 40 years. The human plan would have been 30 days. But God planned for 40 years because he knew all the things he wanted to accomplish were going to take 40 years. The commandments were given to Israel at Sinai after liberation from Egyptian captivity, where God said, here are the stipulations for my relationship with you. You want to be my people? I want you to be my people. Here's what that looks like. And Israel said, hey, sign us up. We're good with that. We're glad to take that covenant. It was no time at all. Moses is back up on Mount Sinai. And what do the people do? They're thinking Moses has left them and abandoned them. They haven't seen him in a few days. So they go to Aaron, his brother, and they say, you know, look, Moses is not coming back. God has devoured him. Something's happened to him. He's not coming back. What are we going to do? 
We need a God. We need a God we can follow, a God we can see. So they fashioned a golden calf, and Aaron helped them. Numbers chapter 12, Aaron and Miriam, Moses' own siblings, spoke out against Moses. They led the people in grumbling against Moses' leadership. They wanted equal billing. Moses is not the only one God can speak through, they said. That may have been true, but he's the one God chose to speak through, right? But it led to division and conflict. In Numbers 13 and 14, the spies had gone in to check out the the, uh, Canaan land, the promised land. They came back with conflicting reports. There are giants in the land. It's going to be a tough fight. We don't think we can win. 10 out of 12 said, we vote not to go in. Two said, we can go. God's promised it to us. We should go. That division led to judgment from God, and God said, okay, We're going to stay out here. You're going to stay in the wilderness until this generation is gone. Then we'll start and we'll do what I set out to do. Number 16 brings us to Korah's rebellion. 250 leaders who didn't like their assignment. We don't like what we're being given to do. We want to to put in uh, an application for a new job. God judged them, the people murmured. Numbers 21, the people complained against God. God sent fiery serpents into the camp and they began to die after being bitten by these serpents and God delivered them once more. Israel was guilty of a continual pattern of ungodly desires and behaviors. They often resorted to their own strategies for coping with these challenges. God would speak, they would hear, they would agree, and then they would rebel. And without fail, they ended up in rebellion and conflict. What would God do? What would this do to God's promises? If we're thinking like human beings, we'd say, look, I'm done with you people. Get out of my sight. I'll find some people that will... Stay the course. Can and God, does God forgive? Can and God still keep his promises? Even when we're faithless? And Moses points back and he says, let me tell you people something. Let me remind you of what happened with Jacob and Laban and Leah and Rachel That family was a proverbial mess. Backstabbing, deceiving. And yet God worked out his promises. The vast nation of people stands as a testimony. Moses said we've come out of Egypt with two million people that began with this one little family. And even with all the disobedience and all of the conflict and rebellion against God, God is still accomplishing his plan. He's established a nation, a great nation, even in 400 years of bondage. We've all struggled with selfish ambitions. We've all experienced jealousy It's poison running through our minds, through our hearts, through our actions. There have been many casualties due to those choices. 
those actions that we've committed. And there have been bitter feelings and resentment rooted in our hearts because of it. You know what I'm talking about. There's not a person in here that hasn't experienced that in your own life at some point in time. That can't be reminded of some way that you have failed God, been faithless to God in the past. So the question is, can God and will God forgive? Can God and will God continue to love us and care for us? Can God and will God still save us and desire fellowship with us? Does he even want anything to do with us? Can God and will God use us for his glory and his honor? And the answer to the question is what? It's an emphatic yes. We look back to Rachel and Leah and Jacob and Laban and Esau and Abraham. And we see, yes, we see evidences of God doing great things. But we see all these failures and faithlessness on the part of human beings. And yet God's plan and will prevails. And we walk away from that knowing, having assurance That God is faithful even when we're unfaithful. Now that's not a license to be unfaithful. That's not a license or permission for us to go out and do whatever we want. But it's to be an encouragement to us that when we fail Him, He never fails us. What He begins, He always finishes. In fact, He doesn't begin anything that He hasn't already completed. This is a promise to sustain you and me day in and day out. No matter how miserably we fail, the onus is upon us to approach him in confession and repentance, to acknowledge our failures, that we might walk in intimate fellowship with him, but not to give up and abandon him because he never forsakes you, never. Father, we thank you and bless you for who you are. Lord, it is evident to us continually your greatness and your faithfulness. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. But you give because of who you are and in spite of who we are. Lord, we pray that the gospel might rescue our hearts from despair and from darkness and from defeat. Lord, that you might rescue us from our lostness and draw us unto yourself. I pray that today you might save the one who does not know you, that you might graft them into your family, your eternal family. Claim them as your own. And change them, transforming them into the image of Christ. And those of us, Lord, who follow Christ and still struggle with some of our weaknesses and failings, that you might rescue us from doubts and fears and concerns. And that you might be honored and glorified through us. 
and that we might continue to look more like Christ each and every day. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.